and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Well, welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. This is a podcast in which we interview expert leaders around the country on best practices for healing our national healthcare system and culture of medicine. I want to extend a very warm welcome today to my colleague, Dr. Helen Reese. Dr. Reese is the founder, chief scientific officer and CEO of Empathetics Inc. She is a Harvard clinical and research psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. In 2012, Dr. Reese founded Empathetics, a company that provides evidence-based empathy and communication skills training for healthcare and allied health professionals on the, and frontline staff. Dr. Reese is also internationally recognized speaker on the topic of empathy and emotional intelligence. Her TEDx talk, The Power of Empathy, has been viewed over 750,000 times, and her new book, which I have here, The Empathy Effect, has been licensed in over 10 foreign countries. Dr. Reese and her teams are dedicated to transforming organizational systems into compassionate care systems. Her research has been published in leading medical journals and has won numerous awards. I also had the honor of meeting Dr. Reese in person at the Burnout Symposium in February and moderating her panel discussion with Dr. Jody Stern. So I just want to give a very warm welcome, Dr. Reese. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Katie, for having me. <laughs> and, you know, I always like to start out for our audience a little bit you know, we want to hear a little bit about how your own journey and how you came to understand that enhancing empathy in healthcare can be really impactful for our systems. Well, as a psychiatrist, um, I was very uh, strongly influenced by the work of Heinz Kohut, who was um, a psychoanalyst who worked in the 1960s and 70s and um, he was the founder of self-psychology, and he was breaking away from some of the more traditional psych psychiatric um, thinking of the time, which had more to do with, you know, people motivated by drives and um, ambition, aggression, sexual motivations. And his school of self-psychology really focused on how does somebody feel whole and um, capable of being their best self? And he understood that as the ability to be empathized with. And he went on to uh, do research and through his psychoanalytic practice, um, came to see empathy as the um, ingredient without which there can be no cure. That unless people truly feel that someone understands their situation, their emotions, and their perspective, that you're not going to have a successful treatment in, in psychiatric work. And he called empathy psychological oxygen. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so as a psychiatrist, this work deeply influenced my work with some very challenging populations that were often um, considered like really difficult to work with. I did early work with um, eating disorder patients who, um, you know, often elicited a great sense of helplessness because in some ways they were perceived as, you know, being responsible for their own conditions. So anorexics who wouldn't eat or people who were overweight, who were having trouble losing weight. And I noticed that there was just a lot of um, judgment and sometimes disdain and even contempt. And because I worked with these patients sometimes for years, when you really understood where they were coming from and what was behind their disordered behavior in eating, you could understand how they got that way and it really took judgment away. And um, I always believe that if we really understood someone's backstory, that there would be very little judgment in the world. But we very rarely take time to be curious enough about how did people get to be the way they are? So that's the backdrop. And then in my continuing work, um, it, particularly in the, I would say the early 2000s when um, the electronic health record came in and you know many clinicians were struggling to manage the computer while trying to listen to their patients and trying to you know, do a good history and physical uh, my own patients in my practice started saying, I feel like my doctors don't, they don't listen to me. They're, they're distracted. They don't pay attention. They don't remember what I'm saying. They don't remember people in my life. And first I thought it was one or two, you know, unhappy patients, but my research group was all clinician researchers. They were hearing the same thing. Like people are just feeling like a number and so many of them are saying, I don't even want to return to this doctor anymore. They don't listen. Um, and so I realized, um, and newspapers at the time were talking about this big shift in how patients are, were really feeling um, unseen and unheard in their healthcare visits. And it wasn't just outpatient, it was everywhere because the pace of medicine had suddenly just really picked up. And so um, a member of my research team is, I think what these people really are asking for is empathy, mm -hmm. but too bad we can't teach it because back then people still believe you either have it or you don't. You're either born with it or not. Yes, exactly. And it was really considered an inborn trait. Yeah. And when um, I took that as a, kind of a challenge because we you know we did various sort of psychotherapy research to see how you can better understand and you know like use different techniques and different you know theories to improve patients uh treatments um and i thought this is a really huge idea like maybe you can teach it and so i it i happen to have applied for a a medical education fellowship at Harvard, and I made my project um, the neuroscience of empathy to see, like, if we understood how this works in the brain, maybe we could figure out if you can teach it. Because I reasoned that if we can, like, beat it out of people, if it can be down regulated, 
we must be able to upregulate it, but nobody really knew how to do it. And so that kind of led to this whole empathy research and, um, you know, trying to find solutions to the problem journey. And can you just give our audience like an overview of some of the key concepts behind the neuroscience of empathy so we have an idea? Yeah, sure. So, um, the, you know, when, when I got interested in this, most people in the medical profession just thought people who come to healthcare have empathy. Why else would you choose a profession in nursing or medicine or any of the allied health professions if you didn't care about people? Because there are lots of other jobs that are, frankly, a lot easier. Um, and so we know it pulls people who, you know, they want to help. And so the, um, the puzzle was, you know, how do you get people who want to help to, who, who are suddenly now like short and cutting people off, interrupting, you know, how does this happen? So um, empathy was still considered kind of a soft skill and something that, you know, just comes with wanting to be in the healthcare professions. And what was really changing was that with the advent of neuroimaging, so the ability to scan the brain and to sort of see what areas of the brain get activated when people are do, doing certain things, we suddenly had a window into something that before was kind of a black box. You just, you know, you know, why, why were people acting a certain way or not? And so the, the neuroscientists were getting very interested in this whole concept of empathy. And so they did a lot of elegant studies looking at the brain. You know, they had people in scanners when, um, you know, when they received an electric shock to see like, okay, what happens in the brain? And so, you know, your pain centers light up and you get kind of a fight or flight response physiologically. And then they um, were interested in, well, what happens in the brain when someone you love is given an electric shock? Like, does your brain stay still and say, oh, my loved one is getting an electric shock? <laughs> or, you know, what kind of signal happens? And so the really interesting thing was that an observer knowing someone, they, they used, um, married couples in this first experiment, when the spouse, in this case, the female knew that her spouse was getting an electric shock, her own pain centers lit up. Hmm. So nothing had touched her, but she got a, an experience of pain. And so this was like the first research that, you know, like when we say, I feel your pain, yeah, it's not just a figure of speech. We actually do feel some discomfort when we see other people in pain. It's why, you know, if you see somebody stepping on like glass, mm -hmm. you kind of flinch. You don't just stand there and um, observe it. You you get kind of a vicarious, mm -hmm. um, but attenuated experience of pain. And so they started to realize that we are much more connected 
to other people's experience than we had thought. But when I say this, it's not surprising. Like when, you know, like, oh yeah, I do flinch when I see somebody get hurt, but I never thought about like, what's making me do that, mm -hmm. right? So they realized that um, this is the substrate of empathy that we experience other people's emotions just by observing and perceiving what's going on in them. But you may ask like, why has this preserved like during the thousands of years that the humans have been on the planet? Like wh why, why is this useful? And so some people will say, well, it's useful to, um, to know what causes pain so that we don't step on glass and so that we don't do things that, you yeah. know, will hurt us. And then, uh, and other people will say, well, it also makes us want to help. Right? Because if we didn't, if we didn't perceive the, the harm ourselves, we might think like that, you know, I don't know if that hurt or not. Mm -hmm. So this, this vicarious um, ability to perceive somebody else's suffering actually elicits what they call empathic concern. And that's like where you move from just like seeing something that doesn't bother you to like, oh, wow, that looks like it hurt or she looks like she's in pain. So that is the motivation to help. And so that's how empathy is um, really a capacity. It's not just one thing. It requires perceiving what other people are experiencing and processing that in a way that brings out a motivation to help mm. and then we don't always help even when we feel motivated right sometimes we don't have time we don't have you know bandwidth whatever but when we actually help that is then a compassionate response mm -hmm. so many people confuse empathy and compassion but empathy is really the input it's like the perception and then we have a motivation to help. And that is the compassion that, that is observable. That's what people see. Whereas empathy is more internal. I Does that make sense? Yes, because in your book, you talk about the different facets of empathy. So I that was actually a question I was going to ask you about. Um, but yeah, that, that does make sense. But the other important part of empathy is the cognitive like the the thinking component not just the affect or, or of the emotional component and that is called perspective taking and that's our ability like literally to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and imagine what it would be like for that person in their situation mm -hmm. right not that person in my situation right so if it's a person who's getting harmed um and they don't have a way to get to the hospital. So you've just seen them step on glass, but you know, there's no one there to help. So that put, gives you more motivation to help because they don't have any resources to get there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's these are the sort of key uh, components and perspective taking takes place in the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain and the, um, the shared circuits for 
painful emotions and physical distress are in the emotional centers of the brain. Well, thank you for going into detail about that. I think I have a better understanding now. And I, I think that it's important for audience under listening today, like if you're a physician, healthcare professional, a leader, you know, we, we all automatically assume that we are empathic when we go into healthcare, like you said, but there are so many different skills that we can learn to shift that to empathic capacity and to be more mindful of that. So I look forward to hearing more about how you've been able to implement that through your company empathetics. Yeah. So we have um, a real opportunity, you know, I, I guess just to give some context for your listeners, um, all of this neuroscience research and uh, trying to find out can we teach it led to my developing an intervention, uh, like an empathy innovation, like what can people actually implement in their hospital or medical group settings that can help clinicians uh, refine these skills and to kind of bring them back into the, the knowledge that th these are practices that need to be cultivated and need to be nurtured. Because when we're short on time and when we have like a lot of like productivity requirements, you can get very sort of task oriented, like I just have to check this list. And that actually pulls us away from the meaning and purpose of our jobs. Yes, absolutely. So the real harm, you know, in healthcare settings is to keep expecting more work faster um, and forgetting about the people who are delivering the care. Because unless they are feeling cared about and unless their, you know, basic needs for not just safety and health, but appreciation and, um, you know, attempts to create a more frictionless workplace to make the workflows easier and also to just feel that all the efforts they're making to take care of all these, you know, sick people are really being appreciated in in very tangible ways. And um, many healthcare leaders take a lot of these practices for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the so one of the conversations that we had at the burnout symposium was around the fact that you have actually been able to impact healthcare leadership in terms of teaching them empathy related skills. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience you've had? Yeah, so yeah, it's been a really exciting journey, Katie, because um, we started out just trying to help physicians get back to the, you know, the kind of care delivery that they all take an oath to do, which is to provide, you know, safe and compassionate care and to first do no harm. I mean, that's the most basic is that we don't want to inflict any harm. So, um, you know, by understanding the, you know, the, even the physiologic impact of um, either rude or dismissive or, um, you know, unappreciative types of interactions with patients, doctors start to understand, like, when I don't treat people with respect and with, you know, careful listening and responding in 
ways where I really understand what my patients need, you know, we actually do cause harm because it can mean I don't want to see this doctor anymore or I'm not going to follow through with the recommendations. So the first step was really to show that um, we can improve these skills and our goal in our research was to determine whether improving empathy actually moves the needle on patient experience scores. So hospitals are really held accountable to their patient experience because their reimbursement is actually tied to whether or not patients experience the care as compassionate. It's not just having a clean hospital or low infection rates or, you know, few readmissions. It's also about they're asked, like, did somebody listen to you? Did they understand your cares and concerns? Did they explain things clearly? And so by emphasizing our training to upskill uh, healthcare professionals, we actually make their jobs easier and the hospitals benefit by getting, you know, an improved reputation through higher patient experience scores. And so we started with just physician training. It then led to nurse training. It then led to frontline staff training. And now our hospital leaders are understanding you've got to, you know, have the whole care team singing from the same songbook because one bad interaction is going to reflect poorly on that whole experience. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think if healthcare leaders have a better understanding of, you know, empathy doesn't happen in 10 minute chunks every hour. And when doctors are put in that kind of time frame where we're, especially in primary care, where we're moving patients through every 10 to 15 minutes, sometimes there is a need for a little bit extra time to manage the emotions and the feelings of our patients. And so I bet that, you know, through empathic skills training, hospital administrators probably also learn more about that and have a better understanding um, of how we operate as doctors. That's exactly right. And in some of the hospitals that we're working with, the hospital administrators actually take the training themselves mm. because they get a firsthand experience of um, not just how this could be better for their workers, but how empathic practices actually make them better leaders. So there's also a very important leadership component to this type of training because empathy is considered a leadership superpower. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, are you, do you, I think you have some information you wanted to share with us on that today. Um, I know you had done, I think that there is, you had just gotten some research back on this um, by the time we were at the symposium and we didn't get a chance to look at that there. So I would love to, Give the opportunity to share that today. Well, sure. We have a very um, strong partnership with Sutter Health in California, and they—we've uh, been working with them uh, for uh, at least four years now. And um, so they track things like patient experience and um, employee wellness. And um, probably all of your listeners know that. Um, uh, employee retention is like one of the biggest concerns of every hospital leader these days, because since the pandemic, um, 
more than a half a million doctors and nurses have not just quit their jobs, but they have quit the profession. Mm -hmm. So there's a real lack and rehiring one nurse can cost up to $250,000 and getting a new doctor and replacing somebody who had a busy practice can cost up to a million dollars. So retention is on the top of mind and retention of frontline staff, like the people who check you in at the hospital and the, their attrition rate is very high now too. So our partners at Sutter Health were tracking not just patient experience, but also measures of communication, wellness and attrition. And so I'll share my screen to show you what this data is that we also just shared at the Barrel Institute, which is a patient experience um, conference that takes place every year. So, um, so here you can see that um, in the first phase of our cohort, which was just one department of 53 OBGYN physicians, they tracked for four years um, their retention rate compared to the rest of the providers at uh, the Sutter Gould Medical Foundation. And overall, their turnover was almost 83% less Wow! in the empathetics trained uh, group. Um, the kind of camaraderie and uh, sense of mission and purpose really gets reinstilled when people come together and learn skills that make their jobs easier. You know, we help people learn how to resolve the most challenging types of interactions in healthcare. And everyone in healthcare knows it's a very high stakes relationship. In phase two, they implemented the empathetics training across all of adult medicine. So these were new departments of family medicine, internal medicine, and primary care. And their NRC ratings increased in every metric, including overall uh, provider ratings. And um, these uh, scales are measured like in the 10th of a percent. So getting a, you know, almost 5% increase is really significant. And uh, millions of dollars are tied to like every percent point. So this is again, really exciting information. Yes. And then the um, there's the American Medical American Medical Group Association survey that asks about um, a question. Communication breakdowns are common in my department, and pre-training, 24% of people said yes, and post-training, one year it went down to 12.6. So this is um this is pretty exciting data that our intervention is working. And then we looked at frontline staff and the reduction in turnover was 50% less uh, following that second phase of um, implementation. And these were people checking in uh, patients, you know, to, to, the, uh, to, to, to their care. And the um, patient experience ratings among empathetics trained frontline staff moved from the overall rating of untrained people where they were getting uh, minus two, minus 0.2, it went up to plus 4% improvement. Um, and then we looked at 
burnout and burnout, as you probably well know, Katie, is measured um, both by the American Medical Association scale, the mini Z, and mm -hmm. there are many different components of burnout. One of them is um, uh, communication within your uh, work team. And the results from the uh, Sutter uh, experience of the work survey, and this was conducted by Willis Towers Watson, which is a different scale, showed that after the empathetics implementation, the frontline staff improved 15% in communication, 9% in resilience to burnout, and up 3% in teamwork and safety. Wow, that's amazing. That That's really significant data. And that was after how many months of training? You said after a year? It was pre and post one year later? Uh, they measured it pre and post one year later. The, the actual training um, takes about six months, um, but it's very brief. It's really, um, we have what's called blended learning. So there's a self-paced online. Okay. Uh, just three hours and um, workshops that are spread in between the, the self-paced learning. Okay. And then um, they took a little deeper dive to see what happens to the lowest rated providers. Do they get better? And so they looked at the providers with the lowest rating and the increase in overall provider rating was the greatest for these for this cohort. A control group of 10 adult medicine providers with comparable baseline ratings who did not complete any of the courses actually got worse. So their scores went down 1.2%, but the, um, the trained, and these were the pro providers with the lowest scores, they went up uh, 5.4 percentage points. So if nothing else um, proves that empathy can be taught, like I think that does, because there you're talking about the people who, for whom it may not come very naturally, but they were able to learn. And then this is our last slide. After the empathetics training, um, respondents indicating communication breakdowns are common in my department. So this is not frontline staff, but providers. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that decreased 11.5% um, in this um, American Medical Group Association survey. And um, so you can see the empathetics cohort um, went from 24% um, in 2021, all the way down to 12.6%, saying, in effect, communication breakdowns are less common. And um, and then the untrained at Sutter were up at around 31%. So we are um, extremely proud of this work. And finally, there was one more slide. The um, resilience to burnout um, went up eight points. Um, in the frontline staff cohort. So we're, um, we are really excited about these results because like there's an old saying that everything that counts can't be measured, but everything that measures counts, um, something like that. Yes. Everything that counts can't always be measured, but when you actually can measure movement like this, you're, you're telling a different story than just, I think this is a good idea, or I think it might help. Mm -hmm. And you actually have some metrics that, you know, let people know that 
you know, an investment in their teams and in their providers um, and really help them achieve what most hospital missions say in that they're going to provide, you know, effective and compassionate care. We want to help them do both. Yes. Yes. Um, it's really, that's really fascinating, Helen. And the fact that the turnover reduction was so high and, you know, it came down to empathic skills training. Uh, to me, to me, that really shows that there, um, there is hope and that, you know, there there's kind of an old bias in healthcare that, you know, well, everyone's empathic, like doctors are the best listeners around. That's what we do for a living. We're automatically that way. Um, and in my own personal experience as a psychiatrist and going through leadership training and coaching, I also have realized how much I needed to learn about empathic skills training as well. And I think we can always strive to be better listeners and to be more empathic and compassionate, you know, and I, the past decade too, it, things have changed so much in healthcare that it was kind of a slow insidious process over time. But I noticed even in my own practice, I was having less empathy and compassion for my patients because I was so overwhelmed with the paperwork and the EMR. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I have, I'm behind eight notes already. And now I've got this patient with all these problems. And this is going to be more coordination of care. And like, I, I would, by the end of the day, I could barely be present with my patients as a psychiatrist. And so really, and I haven't taken your training. I would absolutely love to, <laughs> but I'm just sharing that. I think even having some education and coaching on self-regulation and being present and clearing in between patients and setting the pace and the tone and um, having a little bit more say in your schedule can make a huge difference. And I'm glad to see that your research is showing that. Katie, you're bringing up a very, very important point. So we don't like pretend that just taking empathy training is going to fix all the problems mm -hmm. in healthcare. I mean, there are there's so much work to be done to make the work day just more compatible with what people are trained to do instead of spending their time documenting and doing administrative work, which is no one said, do you want to be a doctor so you can do like 50% administrative work? No, no one signs up for that. So there's a tremendous amount of work to be done to find out ways to offload the administrate because I think that is causing the most burnout. But while we're figuring that out, we cannot afford to have the impact of that affect our patient care because it affects their outcomes. It affects everything, including the survival of the healthcare organization. Like if they get terrible scores, their reimbursements go down and they can't survive. So we've got to be working at these problems through multiple different angles to create the healthcare system of our future. Mm -hmm. Excellent point, Helen. And it's it's a long game. Changing, working on the operational side of healthcare is a long game. It's a five to 10 year process for a lot of healthcare systems that are investing in revamping EMR and systems and flow. But, um, I really like how you say that right now we can do something and you know I get concerned when I look at the data 10% of physicians are walking out of healthcare every year. Right. 
Last year, we lost another, I, I mean, I haven't seen the latest data, but I bet it was close to 120,000 physicians. And it's not turning around. And if, you know, we, if every hospital organization did your empathetics training, I wonder what that would look like for turnover. And we could keep physicians and nurses and frontline staff in healthcare because they would understand that, yes, the system is not quite where we want it yet, but I feel validated. I feel understood when I come to work. And when I tell my office manager that I'm overbooked today and it's not going to work, they listen to me and we have a plan to figure out the workload for the day. Like, I think if you have that sense where you feel validated and understood, you can, we're trained to be resilient as doctors and nurses, and we're trained to be told this, this is going to be a longer term process. You have to have patience, right? But if we don't feel heard and we get dismissed throughout the day, it just escalates and escalates and then we leave. Well, you're exactly right. And um, I think, you know, I wrote a paper on institutional empathy and that's how you create individual resi resilience for the workers is that you have empathy for them and stop taking them for granted that they're just gonna show up and do whatever when the burdens are cr clearly breaking people. Yeah. And so um, leaders, I think are slowly coming around to realizing they've got to listen to the workers, not just, you know, treat them like cogs in a wheel to get a product out like an assembly line. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, the burnout crisis is not going away fast, but it's gotten the attention of every healthcare mm -hmm. leader. It's a matter of them using their own empathy, curiosity, and willingness to try new things, to try to turn healthcare into a, the caring profession it's designed to be. Well, Helen, I know we've covered quite a bit today, and I, I appreciate you helping us, I think, get a really deeper understanding of um, empathic skills training and empathic capacity. I'm wondering if there's any last key message that you want to leave with our audience today. So, um, you know, we focused mostly on building better empathy skills to, to, to put out into practice. Yeah. I also encourage people to practice self-empathy, to like look at yourself in the mirror and to really look yourself in the eye and say, what do I really need? You know, what do I need to show up better? And also, what am I focusing on at work? Like, do I keep looking for reinforcement that this is a terrible profession and that we're all just overworked and, you know, grinding down? Or do I actually take moments to appreciate those? I just call them like golden moments when you've really met a person's need and they feel really understood. Mm -hmm. And I, it's called exquisite empathy. And I think that fills our tanks. But if all we do is talk about, you know, the drudgery and the burnout and the, the, the downside, and we don't also realize we become what we focus on. And if we can share good stories and share a time when, like, I just feel like I made such a difference in this person's life or that family member, you know, wrote me a card because they said, you know, without your encouraging words, you know, we would have given up hope. So I just think a lot of what we're doing can actually get better just by 
looking at the positive, it's not all bad. And I still think there is nothing more rewarding than helping people. Cause like, what else are we doing here? <laughs> well, I agree, Helen. And it, and it, and it actually, that is a skill. And I want to highlight this for our audience. It, it's not positive thinking necessarily. It's, it's a growth mindset. Yes. And being able to look at the blessing. And I, I don't want this to sound like I'm bypassing, like spiritual bypassing, whatever, but you know, in the moment, if we're, you know, I'm the not the nurse is knocking on the door because I have a patient who just needs a five more minutes. The nurse is saying your patient's already here. If I can take a moment and just take a deep breath, let my nurse know I need five more minutes and be with a patient and know that I was able to prevent a possible suicide today, or I was able to catch this patient needs additional testing or a head MRI, I'm worried about a brain injury or something because I spent extra time and now I know what's going on. And I feel really good about that today. And yes, my nurse knocked on the door and interrupted me and I felt rushed, but I was able to overcome that because the most important thing is that I impacted a human life today for better. And if I can focus on that, and, and it's a skill, Helen, because I still have to practice it every day, right? Well, I really think that is the message we both want to leave with, with yeah. your audience today, which is this is not a one and done. This is a practice like any other thing you want to build up in your life. Like it's a daily awareness that you bring yes. to how am I showing up? And you know what? We all screw up. There's not one person on the planet that hasn't done something or said something that was not like the best way they wanted to show up. But instead of like just dumping all over ourselves to practice some forgiveness and say, I, I'll do better next time, but I've learned how I don't want to be. So um, to just practice the same kind of non-judgment and, you know, desire to improve because there's so much judgment in this whole world. We don't need any more. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to, right. that That was well said. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Helen, for being our guest today. And I look forward to spreading the word and, and uh, sharing the data and the information with our audience. And, you know, for everyone, I'll, I'll have, you know, web page and a bio page for Dr. Helen Reese. I'll have all of her links. Her book will be on there as well as her article on institutional resilience and any other information that you want to know will be there as well. And my TED talk, I think would and help. Of course, your TED talk. Yes. Fill in a lot of um, extra things we didn't get to today. So. I know. I meant to talk, to ask you about that as well. But yeah, Helen has a wonderful TED talk and um, that'll be a link as well that we'll highlight. Well, keep up the great work. I mean, just bringing awareness to so many people in your podcast is a tremendous contribution. Thank you, Katie. Well, thank you, Helen. And thank, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. And I look forward to seeing you next time. And if you have any questions, we'll have Helen's information available to reach out to. All Take right. Bye-bye.